The Low Post is brought to you by Goodyear, helping you discover the road ahead. Goodyear, more driven. Before we get started today, I want to remind you to download and subscribe to the Hoop Collective with my friend Brian Winhorst and company and the Woj Pod with the great Adrian Wojnarowski, available wherever you get your podcasts. Plus, the Ultimate Fighter is back. The reality show that brings top MMA prospects together under one roof to compete for a UFC contract is on ESPN+. Plus. Bantamweights and middleweights put their lives on hold for the chance to pursue their UFC dreams. Stream new episodes every Tuesday only on ESPN+. Plus. Sign up now at ESPNplus.com slash UFC. And now, The Low Post. Welcome to The Low Post Podcast, live from Los Angeles, California, where the second round is underway and not going very well for the Milwaukee Bucks, among other teams. To help us break it all down, we have two special guests. Uh, it's been a while since I've had Bobby Marks on, our ESPN front office insider slash Chris Stapps Porzingis fake trade builder. Bobby, how are you doing? I'm good, Zach. How are you? I'm hanging in. And from The Athletic, making his first appearance on this podcast, formerly of the Milwaukee Bucks, and one of the very best ever at writing about analytics and basketball in a way that makes sense and is understandable to normal human beings, the great Seth Partner. How are you? I'm great, Jack. Thanks for having me on. And as I said before, your beard is absolutely raggedy and tremendous and probably has food particles in it somewhere that haven't been detected yet. Um, thank you again. You should, you should be, you should be happy with it. Let's, let's start out with Bucks Nets. Um, the Nets won game two by, I don't even know, I don't even know what the final score was last night because obviously I stopped watching at some point. It approached 50 at points, uh, an absolute shellacking, a total embarrassment for the Bucks who are down 2-0 and facing some very, very difficult questions that actually may end up not being so difficult if the series continues apace. Um, to me, the two stories of this series so far are, number one, Kevin Durant reasserting himself as, you know, when this guy got hurt in Toronto. Bobby, were you there when that happened? No, I wasn't. I was actually in Bristol, with sitting with Timmy Legler when that happened. Do you in call him Timmy? You see, you're on a Tim, Timmy name basis with Tim, Tim, Tim Legler in the green room. Um, that's when yeah, when it happened. So, so I, I've said that, I've said this before that that is burned into my memory forever, ever, and ever. I can see exactly from my press seat to where he fell down diagonally to my left, and I remember doing the post game podcast with Brian Windhorst. And not talking about it for like the first 90 seconds because I wanted to talk about the crazy Warriors comeback. And I think subconsciously I just didn't want to talk about it. And Wendy looked at me and he said, we should probably talk about how Kevin Durant maybe tore his Achilles or something like that. And I was like, I, I guess we should. And while that was happening, Bob Myers was giving the press conference where he broke down. And it's just an all-time traumatic event. And I remember writing after that happened, this isn't just a superstar this is a guy who was very much on pace to be one of the 10 greatest players ever, more than a scorer, a great defensive player, a guy who can hurt you ISO, pick and roll, cutting. And we're going to talk about how Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving have been cutting a lot in the playoffs and like showing their all-around craft. And this series, and in particular game two, when he just pick and rolled Milwaukee to death, where's Brooke Lopez? There he is. Bring him in. You're toast. And, and when he blocked Brooke Lopez in the post at the apex of like the ball didn't even get out of Brooke Lopez's hands. Brooke Lopez is a mountain of a man and Kevin Durant just reached up and blocked it. He has reasserted himself to, Oh yeah, you guys, did you guys forget? Like I was, I was 
the two-time finals MVP. I was coming for the throne before I got hurt. His play in this series, and in particular in game two, has been so magnificent in every phase of the game. We just think of him as a scorer, and he is a great scorer, but he's more than that. So that's story number one. Story number two is the Bucks through two games are averaging 97 points per 100 possessions, which is appalling and would rank dead last in the NBA by a mile. And so if we want to talk about turning around the series, we should probably start there because this offense was a top five offense in the NBA. The Nets were uh, not a good defense. And we all sort of questioned, like, do they have enough defense to really get through it, even though they've been my pick to win the title since they got Harden? Maybe they don't even need Harden. What the hell is going on? So let's start with you, Seth. Like, what are you seeing with the Bucks' offense and how much of it is fixable with some with some adjustments uh, from Mike Budenholzer, who, by the way, it's a big 72 hours right now for Mike Budenholzer. Let's just be polite and say that. So the biggest thing we're seeing is that the Bucks are playing completely out of character. Um, yes, they, they have some good one-on-one players, and especially Giannis when he gets going to the hole. But from the start of game two, they were going one-on-one and taking pull-up mid-range jump shots. And Chris Middleton can make those shots, and Drew Holiday can make those shots, but that's not where their bread is buttered, certainly with with Giannis. And and part of that is when they're taking those shots, that means the other players who are more limited in themselves just can't get involved. And, And that's how they started game two, even though that was a big problem for the last three quarters of game one. And, and it was really, it was shocking because it was like, yeah, this is a problem. We need to get back to a better balance of our game and then just going completely the other direction. Um, so some stats to back that up other than the piss poor offensive rating, the bucks have taken 56 threes in this series. 29 of them have been off the dribble. So more than half in the regular season, I think 70% of their threes were catch and shoot or something like that. So that's a red flag. My question is, and Bobby, I don't know what you've seen. My question is like, why is this happening? Because typically the Nets the Nets get you to, to devolve into isolation play by switching, right? The whole ethos of the Nets is we're the best isolation team. So when the playoffs come and we switch and you switch and the only options either of us have left is to play one-on-one, we have Kevin Durant, James Harden, and Kyrie Irving. You have Giannis, who if I see one more dribble up, shoot a pull-up three with 20 on the shot clock, I might throw my hotel TV off the wall. Uh, Chris Middleton's fine. Drew Holiday's fine. They're not those other guys. Um, Their ethos is we can beat you in that game. The interesting thing is Giannis has been the main ball screener for the Bucs through two games in the series. He set 33 ball screens. The Nets have only switched five of them. The Nets are not switching a lot of Milwaukee's bread and butter action. And yet still Milwaukee keeps finding itself in these scenarios where they're taking horrible shots. And I think there's an interesting sort of puzzle as to why Bobby, what have you seen? What if this resonates with you? Well, I mean, I think what, what a couple of things, a undisciplined on the offensive and, 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 and just what I'm saying is that it's almost like they're looking for the big three, 10 point play. Right, there are no ten point play and you know ten point shot in, in this league here. I mean, it started with you know. I mean, I know we all killed Jeff Teague, but the Jeff Teague transition three in in game one with twenty on the clock, right? Like, like that is not going to get you back in games. And I think we saw 
Um, as you mentioned, there was two, the two Giannis threes. Um, I don't think, I mean, it was still, I guess it was a 20 point game at the time. Um, you know, lack of ball movement. Um, you know, they, they missed a golden opportunity when they're down 17 to start the second quarter and in Brooklyn does not have Kevin or Kyrie on the court and Brooklyn goes plus three in that time frame. which I wonder, if Steve, I wonder if Steve Nash, I wonder if Steve Nash was just like, we're up by a lot. Let me just, let me just with them a little bit. They're not, they're not expecting this lineup. Maybe I can just flummox flummox. them. that was a plot twist. That was a plot twist. I expected even less than the Jeff Teague first half minutes in game one. Well, and the other thing too, is that like, I know Brooklyn won by like uh, whatever forty five, but I thought there was like a there was like a stretch there where they kind of got they settled. Um, if they wanted to go through Kevin Durant on every play, <laughs> I mean they can. I mean it, it, it. You know sometimes they do forget he's out there. I mean if you're if you're coming down, if you're Kyrie or if you're Mike James or if you're one of these other guys, but. Um, it's, I think if you're Milwaukee, you're going to have to go back to the film from those two games in May as far as those two home, home, the, the home and home back to back games that you wind up beating to figure out what it's going to be. And, um, you know, certainly Tucker picking up two fouls to, you know, within the first, what, three minutes of the game um, did not help. I thought Brooke would have been the X factor in a series. I thought Brooke Lopez could have been the X factor in the series where just, and maybe I'm a little bit scorned from back in New Jersey and Brooklyn, but keep his big behind down low, right? There's so much. There's such a well, size and, disadvantage here. And speaking of undisciplined, they're just making the Bucks are making decisions that are indicative to me of a frazzled team to the points that both of you are making. Like so, Brooke Lopez posts up Kevin Durant several times. None of them go well. One of them ends up with Kevin Durant blocking the ball into his mouth, and then there are a million other possessions where he has Joe Harris on him or a much smaller person. And on those possessions, he doesn't post up those guys. He posts up Durant. Meanwhile, Drew Holiday has Nick Claxton on a switch and is like, okay, I'm just going to dribble for a while and shoot a baseline jumper that has no chance. No one else on the Bucks even moves. There was another play where um, Drew Holiday had Kyrie Irving on him and he had Giannis. He, he had Giannis ready to screen for him. And if you're the Bucks. One of the only ways you're winning this series is to maximize plays like that. Weak defender put into a Giannis screening pick and roll. Instead of doing that, he called up Middleton to screen for him. They switched Bruce Brown, a good defender, onto Drew Holiday. And then Drew Holiday's like, now I'm going to run the pick and roll with Giannis. You've just made your offense like 20% worse with one stupid preliminary pick. Then you go into an action that the Nets are defending really, really well. And maybe we can talk about that. But but Seth, what else are you seeing? Like, why is why is this offense that is usually pretty dynamic, frankly? Why else is it stuck in mud? I think you have to give some credit to Brooklyn for how well scouted some of Milwaukee's pet actions are. Um, I think it was it was I think in the second quarter uh, there's a play where where Middleton kind of got into his bag, did a kind of back into the middle, and you watch the Bucks, you see this ten times a game where he kind of goes up for a shot and kicks it to the corner for a three. And Mike James just kind of stepped down off the guy in the slot and stole it because they, they were they just knew that was coming. And that's that's been indicative of to me. I think on the Giannis rolls to the basket, uh, Griffin and, and Claxton have been sort of sitting in the right spot on the catch much more Bingo. than we're used to. And, Bingo. and these these kind of 
things that have worked all year, suddenly there's a guy there and they just haven't really had a, a improvisational plan B to react. You just absolutely nailed it. I think Steve Nash has coached a whale of the two games so far. And one of the big things that he's done is on those Giannis pick and rolls, which killed Miami, killed Miami. But all my Milwaukee, all series long, is like, where's Tyler Hero? Where's Goran Dragic? We're putting him in a pick and roll with Giannis as a screener. And I thought the Nets would switch a lot of those plays, even if it meant Kyrie has to deal with Giannis. And then we help and recover and we do our active hand thing. And by the way, they have had, they've been flying around with rotations and deflections. And they haven't done that. I was totally wrong. What they've done instead is they've taken. Giannis's defender, whether it's Blake or Claxton, and sat him so far back that even when Giannis catches the ball clean on a roll, he's looking at a defender and 10 feet of space toward the rim. If you bring those defenders four, five feet further up, Giannis is catching a pocket pass for a dunk. And the Nets have really smartly taken that shot away by just having Blake and Claxton sit three feet further back than a lot of teams would and daring Giannis to shoot those jump hooks. He'll make some. And, 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 and the flip side of that is they've looked at Drew Holiday specifically, but also Middleton and said, we don't think you're beating us with pull-up jumpers if we drop our defenders this far back. We have confidence in our guards to get over screens and, and that you're not going to get easy threes. And we don't think you're beating us with pull-up twos. And I think particularly with Holiday, that's a smart play. I think Steve Nash has done a really good job. Yeah, I mean, I mean that was the big thing, right? Like, you know, Steve going into his first into the into the first series and ever since the 2011 run to start game 1, I mean, how Steve has, you know, and then you know, of course you lose Harden, but we've we've talked all along about like, you know, this is the big 3 has never been intact the whole year. So, to throw out Bruce Brown, to throw out Mike James, to put uh, Landry Shamet out there, you know, guys like that They've they've been accustomed to it. So, um, I mean, as, as Seth said, like they did a heck of a job scouting through the first two games to prepare themselves as far as figure out what works and what um, and what doesn't here. And we go we go back to Milwaukee for Game Three. And I mean, let's face it. I mean, we're in must win. I mean, this Milwaukee team's gonna have to beat them four out of the next five games, um, you know, to do so. For the ones who get it done. Granger offers high-quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facility safe and your people safer. Call or click Granger.com or just stop by. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Let's talk about adjustments the Bucks can make. And, and Bobby, you brought up Tucker, and I opened with Durant. And to me, it's it was clear five minutes into the series that P.J. Tucker has zero chance to guard Kevin Durant. None. Like, even less than I thought. I mean, no one has a chance to guard Kevin Durant, 
But if he can just flatten out the floor and blow by you whenever he wants, which is what he can do to P.J. Tucker, then you have no chance. And so I wonder, realizing that, what you do, and you can do a number of things. You can just take P.J. Tucker off of Kevin Durant but and put Drew Holiday on him, but then you have to put P.J. Tucker and Brooke Lopez somewhere else. Only one of them can guard Blake Griffin. The other would probably guard Bruce Brown. Maybe that's fine. The other thing I wonder is, if P.J. Tucker just can't guard Kevin Durant, like that's his utility in this series. If he has zero chance to do it, if he's, a, it's not to, again, no one can guard him, but if he's now a liability, if he's a victim, if he's just a victim, does he have a purpose in their starting five? And do you have to make a change where you get more shooting, whether it's Forbes, I think Forbes would be the logical choice, maybe Portis if you want more size, I don't know, where you get more shooting into your starting five at Tucker's expense, theoretically, you could do the same with Lopez. And it, it does surprise me we have not seen hardly any of Giannis at center. We've seen a little bit of Giannis and PJ together as the only bigs, but I don't think as much as I expected or enough. But Lopez's size and offensive rebounding feel really important to any chance the Bucks have. I wonder, Seth, like, what do you think of the idea of switching those assignments that way or just Tucker comes off the bench in favor of more shooting? Or is that just going to destroy my, my defense by giving – by, by putting a target on poor Bryn Forbes back? Um, I, I don't think that the defense is the reason why the Bucks are down 2-0. Yeah, Brooklyn got but that's hot. What, but that's, that, that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. Do you just no, need I to think, just go? Yeah, I think you need to you, – you, they need to do something to to juice the offense a little bit. And and some of that is an adjustment. But but frankly, a lot of it is just, you know, you need your 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 best offensive players to play better. Um, you know, Giannis and, and it's especially like his – his sort of playmaking has disappeared completely this series. I mean, you, the you, Nets have also done a great job, by the way, at getting under Giannis screens. Like when they see it coming, which is every time, they're just they're they're at the dotted line when Giannis is at the three point. They're not even entertaining the idea of trying to fight over screens. They are they are on point. I'm sorry, but go ahead. No, and and the other thing is is the Bucks need to get some get some pace into the game. It, it, it's funny we're talking about you know their. They're taking quick, bad shots. But at the same time, that game is through the competitive portion was the slowest game Milwaukee's played all season. Wow. And that's it was in the first half. The pace was 93. They had a couple of 94 five during the season. But those were games that Giannis didn't play like the game against the Knicks where none of the starting lineup played. So they do need to get some pace into the game, but it can't be quick jacks. It has to be, you know, get Giannis kind of in semi transition you know, attacking off off the wing or down the middle, and that's where that's where they can get into you know the kickouts and the open threes for for you know guys like Forbes, because he 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 struggled in part to make an impact because he just isn't getting shots because they are never putting Brooklyn in rotation. Uh, they will hunt him every time he's on the floor, but I think that may be some some you just made to, to accept some of that if you're Milwaukee to get your offense humming again. Um, Another stat on Durant, by the way, just to underscore the different ways they can use him. Uh, game one was the second most pick and rolls he has run as the ball handler in any game this season. This is according to our buddies at Second Spectrum. And game two was number six or number seven. I think I have a number seven. So, like, he's just – they're just going – without Harden, they're just going – who's dropping back? We're going right at that. And, like, I don't know what you're supposed to do because you have to put Brooke Lopez somewhere, and if it's on Bruce Brown, then guess who becomes the main screen setter? 
Bruce Brown, captain of the 2020 Luke, Luke Walton All-Stars. or 20, What year is it? 2021 Luke Walton All-Stars, who's rolling in, hitting floaters. He has 19 points in two games. They haven't really – I mean, they've missed Harden, but they haven't missed him enough. And I just don't know what the answer to some of these problems are, except they, they just got to get – they got to get better offense. I mean, what else are you seeing out there, Seth? No, I, I mean, I think I think you you covered it, and uh, I don't think that the the Lopez on Bruce Brown thing can work. I think you you have to live with with Blake hitting 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 threes again, because as you said, um, uh, you know, Brown is is running all over the place setting screens, and you know, in the second and third quarter last night, it was basically Bruce Brown comes up, sets a screen, flips the angle late. Kyrie or KD takes one dribble off and and rises up and they're two good shooters to 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 have that be be tenable and then if you do come up he's just much faster than Brook and then all of a sudden he's kind of playing that uh, that almost Draymond Green role of of getting downhill in an advantage situation. He just compared Bruce Brown to Draymond Green. I'm so happy. That makes me so happy as a Bruce Brown. As a Bruce Brown. Well, I think they asked him that, Zach, in the press conference, if he's watched Draymond film, and he said he hasn't. So, Keita, Bruce Brown doesn't need to watch Draymond Green <laughs> film. Bruce Brown, Bruce Brown has it down. Um, the, the Milwaukee also has to clean up their defense too because they've botched a lot of switches. They had they had instances last night where they were like swarming guys, like over helping on guys that were totally contained and allowing good shooters to get open looks. Joe Harris has been open way too often on split actions and stuff that the Bucks are just completely botching. And it's, that's, that's again, unlike them. Like that's just not, and I realize that this year they've introduced switching into the team and you, you will have some hiccups here or there, but they haven't had hiccups like that against really good personnel. Like they've had in this series. It's been a very disappointing um, couple of games and a really good couple of games for the Nets. I even thought Steve Nash did a good job of like maximizing the amount of time Kevin Durant was defending a good Bucks player. Like so obviously he's defending the centers whenever Giannis is in the game. But I thought he found him, whether it was when Giannis was resting or elsewhere, he found him chances to guard wings that are like guard the Drew Holiday types, guard good players on their team. I just think it's been a complete shellacking. What if the Nets this is a purely theoretical question that again, I'm not saying this is going to happen. What if the Nets win the title without Harden? Like what does that say about the Harden trade? If, if that ends up happening, like I've, I've always said at the end of the day, this two stars to three stars, it's a very tough decision. And it depends on who your holdover two stars are, how good they are, how much they complement each other. Who's the third star you're trading for. It's all specific. But to me, the Trump card has always been exactly what we're seeing where um, the three stars is insurance against an injury at the wrong time to one of them. But if you win the title, it almost makes you think, boy, I kind of miss that depth we used to have. It's it's just sort of wild. But again, they're a long way from that. What, what does that make any sense? It it does. Um, I just thinking back on that trade, like what did they give up in that? It was interesting because what did they give up in that trade that would be, you know, Jared Allen is a is a player type that is you have to be really good to be playoff impactful as that playoff. You have to be Clint I mean, Capella. Paris Levert and Karis Levert and Jared Allen would be playing. Like if, yeah. if if Landry Shamit can play, Karis Levert can play. And I realize Landry Shamit has a skill set that is very valid. It's just, it's just. I still think they did the right thing. I still think that injury insurance thing trumps everything. But it would be like, 
bonkers if they somehow won the title without James Harden. And by the way, it says Steve, I guess, seemed optimistic that Harden's going to play, right? Bobby, I haven't seen all of Steve's comments. but he Yeah, I mean, I would be. I mean, you know how hamstrings go. I mean, especially a guy who had it during the year. I mean, I, I, I said along, I, I would be stunned if we, I mean, if we see him in the series. I mean, this series, I mean, who knows, how, you know, if it's, could be over quick it could go could be go longer but um i mean going back to when you it said about you know you know winning without the big three and only that if one guy was hurt like when they you know i think a lot of it when they did that trade was just basically as an insurance policy with Kyrie, right like that was kind of like things were kind of teetering a little bit here and to to have a an extra you know kind of extra third star just in case things went off the reservation i think what it's shown too is that like we all talk about like you have to have either cap space or, you know, you got to draft in a lottery, but like there are guys like Bruce Brown and Joe Harris and um, Mike James of the world's, you know, out there. If you can figure out how they fit into your system, like the Mike James signing, which was, I guess in mid March or I guess April, somewhere in April, like, like there are a lot of teams that were not happy with that signing. Because they felt that Brooklyn had kind of a little bit of a loophole where they were basically loaning a player from Cheska, right? Like, you know, I had gotten a text from a GM where he said, like, there are four guys in Europe that you could sign right now that could have an impact, right, you know, in a signing. And Mike James is one of them. Like, how the heck does that even work? He's under contract. So... I think what the, I mean, I give the Nets front of office credit. Like they've looked at Mike James as like a guy that fits with what we're trying to do. Although, you know, Steve Nash had said like, I hadn't even really seen him play, you know? It's hey like, man, Mike, it, Mike James would, he, Mike James would tell you the other Nets need to fit around me, baby, yeah. because I'm Mike, because I'm Mike James. They need, does KD fit with me? That's the question. And he's got a little bit of that bleep bleep in him that the, I don't know if they had that already where like he is the agitator. He is the instigator. He don't give a crap. Like he will say, you know, something to a guy who's shooting free throws. Like he thinks he's as good as Kyrie out there. Right. Like he think, I mean, and great for his, for his confidence stuff. But I mean, the Nets front office has been able to, I mean, Nick Claxton in the second round, right? Like whatever that was pick 31 or pick 32, like they've found a way to plug in guys to surround their main guys. And the Bruce Brown trade was completely inexplicable the second it happened, that they just got Bruce Brown for free. Um, he's a good player. He was a good player last year. And the bottom line is this. It's not just start P.J. Tucker versus Bryn Forbes and blah, blah, blah. The Bucks need to get their heads out of their butts on offense because they're taking bad shots. And it's not just the decisions, to, the, the decisions that are made and not made. It's like you just can't have four guys standing around doing nothing while somebody dribbles. The Bucks aren't good enough for that. They need more screen-to-screener action, some pin downs, some back screens. Some When they've had Giannis set a back screen for someone, that's worked. They've only done it two or three times in the series. It's worked to get them good looks every time. Like I just don't – I realize this stuff is hard and basketball is really, really tiring and it's mentally taxing, but you just they just aren't going to win this series without more of that stuff. Mr. Partnow, do you have any parting thoughts on this series before we turn to Phoenix's – declaration in the game one last night so we're, we're talking about all these sort of versatile guys who are kind of fitting in where they need to for brooklyn and the, the name that is milwaukee's really missing is dante divincenzo because the guy on the, the guy on the roster 
who can do those things, who has like that, that sort of bundle of energy to, you know, get the loose balls fit in, uh, uh, you know, attack a closeout and, and make the next pass. All those kind of, you know, the connecting things that, that Milwaukee isn't totally getting right now. He's kind of the guy on the roster who does those things and he is out for the season. And, and I think that's, you know, it's a big deal. It's a big deal for them. It's and 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 you know you were talking about the three star thing and and the the phrase that comes to mind is margin for error, and it, on one hand Brooklyn loses Harden and they have the margin for error to keep it rolling, and Milwaukee loses a a sort of a minor piece in in Divincenzo and they don't have that similar margin for error and I think that's across the playoffs we're we're kind of seeing the importance of that. Well, Seth, you made a well, good point because you look at Milwaukee, it's like they basically have, I guess, four guys on that back end of the bench are not, are not playable, right? Like they're those developmental projects. You're Sam Merrill's of the world, um, Elijah Bryan, who you just signed from overseas. Like it's, um, you you know, that's, you know, that, I mean, that's what you're staring at once you get past Portis, Forbes, um, Jeff Teague. As far as like you're basically with you've got a seven or eight man rotation there, which is fine, really. I mean that's what the playoffs usually are. But the Bucks just need to be better. I expect a huge response in Game Three. If the Nets roll them in Game Three, it's going to get ugly really, really fast, uh, and and there will be a reckoning of sorts. I've already Let's, gotten the email from Adam, our editor, to get the get it ready. Get the article going. Yeah, start oh, start no. the outline. <laughs> oh no! This re- you know what oh, that Oh my means. god! This reminds me of when of when we got the email when the Raptors were uh, coming back in the conference finals about get your passports ready just in case we have to go to Canada for the finals. I was like, oh my god, they're either jinxing the Raptors. I'm sorry to bring that's, that up. That's so just you- mean. Yeah, <laughs> but I'm go sorry. ahead. That was a tough one. Well, I was actually thinking last night, is game three the biggest game in modern Bucks history? And of, of course it's not. Games five and six of the Eastern Conference Finals and arguably game three of that series when you guys had them in double overtime and all that, which people, it's interesting that you, this must drive you bananas as someone who was working for the team. It's interesting that people, the narrative is that the Bucks are such a postseason failure because of what happened last year in the bubble where they just got rolled. And if they lose in the second round this year, that's again, the second round, like they were so close to being up three Oh in the conference finals. And if you're up three Oh in the conference, finals, you're going to the finals and like everything changes if they get that game. But you know what? They didn't get that game. You didn't get that game. I'm sorry that you, you were a member of the team. Um, and then you didn't get any of the next three. So it happens. Spring is the best time to add new challenges to your training just in time for summer and warmer days. It's also the best time of the year to take a new look at your fitness routine, dial it up a notch, and continue powering on. Peloton's varying class lengths were designed with your personalized training in mind. Whether you'd like to add a 10-minute course session at the end of your strength class or take a 60-minute power zone ride to increase your endurance, Peloton classes help you focus on your needs and goals. They are also made to challenge you with a variety of classes like boot camps, boxing, okay? full body strength, marathon training, all created to grow your skills or push you to improve in what you already excel in. Peloton's expert coaches and nonstop vibes, hashtag vibes, will push you to new levels of strength and endurance, keeping you on your toes while giving you the professional coaching you need. With a wide variety of options, whether you prefer to run outdoors, row, or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. Get your head start on summer with Peloton at onepeloton.com. That's onepeloton.com. I went. 
Shopping for Mother's Day is usually a challenge because you wait until the last minute. Shame on you, by the way. But Macy's Gift Finder makes it incredibly fast and easy to find the right gift just in time for Mother's Day. Whether you're shopping for your sister's first Mother's Day or your fashionista mom who loves to make a statement, Macy's Gift Finder has so many great gift ideas, you can easily pick out something special to celebrate the both. You can shop by price anywhere from 25 bucks and under to 100 bucks and under. You can also sort by category like fragrance, handbags, more, or gift lists like for the mom who has everything pre-wrapped gifts, gifts for grandma. You can find top brands like Studio Pro Model Beats headphones, Polaroid cameras, and Samsung Smart TV. So what are you waiting for? Mother's Day is May 12th. That's very soon. It'll be here before you know it. Macy's has the perfect gift guide to make picking something for your mom easy this year. Head to macy's.com slash gift finder today. That's macy's.com slash gift finder. Let's talk about the Suns uh, who rolled the Nuggets last night. I thought this was going to be a coin flip series, um, and it, and obviously game one at home does not mean – the home team winning game one does not mean it won't be a coin flip series. But it it just felt like the Nuggets had no answer to the Suns' pick-and-roll attack on defense, and the Suns are playing with such confidence and force. And two two other things, and then, and then I'll turn it over to you, Seth. Number one, that was the first game – of the post-plague, or I guess we're not post-plague, late plague, late plague era, where I actually felt through the TV, Phoenix is going on that run when they're down nine and then they they take the game, where you hear the crowd cascading into a crescendo from play to play to play, peaking with that alley-oop to Torrey Craig, and you even hear the pitch go higher because people are screaming more. And I almost got chills watching it because I, I just you forget what a tidal wave of force that is coming onto the floor and how awesome it was. And that just felt and those Phoenix fans are going crazy and they should and it's awesome. And to see Chris Paul, the other thing, to see Chris Paul come out in the fourth quarter, yeah, you know, I was quiet for three quarters. You all think my shoulder hurts, like I don't really want to shoot threes. I I, I don't really want to shoot threes, but Oh, you can switch Jermichael Green on me? Let me get into my bag. Mid-range jumper, mid-range jumper, mid-range jumper. All of a sudden, he's got 17 or whatever in the quarter. It was a point guard performance. And so, Seth, I'll start with you. What did you notice about – what impressed you about the Suns or what worries you if you're the Nuggets? Um, I think you have to start with with Aiden basically playing Jokic to a draw. I mean, he is – I'm not sure there's a player in this postseason who has – raised my estimation of them more than DeAndre Ayton. And and he was, I mean, he was very solid defensively. He he is uh playing with a lot more force offensively, although he still occasionally kind of tries to do kind of up and unders instead of just going getting fouled. Um but that like you've got the MVP, he can't be played even by the other team's third or fourth best player. And 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 Jokic maybe ran out of gas a little bit in in the in the late third fourth quarter, um, and that I think that was part of it. My my Denver's chance to win this series, and full disclosure, I picked Nuggets in seven, was that Jokic is just a monster the entire series, and as we saw with Portland, it's it, this is a very much a carbon copy of that series from Denver's perspective in that. To make Jokic be a monster, they're going to have to work a little harder on offense than they usually do because they have a post defender who is going to defend him sink or swim. They're going to defend him mostly one-on-one. They'll dig here and there and blah, blah, blah. But mostly they're going to leave Aiton on an island and bet on him. 
at least holding Jokic on a good day to 50% shooting without fouling on post-ups or 45% shooting without fouling on post-ups, which you can live with. Um, and without all those guards, and we don't need to go on the laundry list of guards that are missing, the Suns can and should do what Portland did, which is under on Campazzo, under on Rivers, maybe over on Morris because he's a dangerous shooter. But if we go under as much as we can, under on Aaron Gordon if he ever handles the ball, we minimize the the amount of movement Aiton has to make off Jokic. He doesn't have to help. No one else has to help. We get to stay home. And so Jokic doesn't – Jokic thrives when he gets little two-foot windows of space, right? When you're moving one way and he's got the ball and he's he can pump and drive by you, he can pass fake, he can do all those things. If you don't give him those two- to three-foot windows of space, he can still get 35. He averaged 33 against Portland. But he's got to work really hard to do it. They've got to set cross screens. He's got to come off pin downs. He's got to run, pick, and roll. He's got to push the pace. It just becomes way harder for him when Jamal Murray is not just giving him pick-and-pop looks or post entries on switches and all that. And I think, set to your point, the thing that worried me was Denver and Jokic just didn't look up to the challenge of, of grinding that stuff out possession after possession after possession. It's hard work to do that. I, I also think that you, you talked about the, the guards. The the other side of that is because Phoenix has the ability to put more pressure on the guards, like the, getting Jokic the ball in those windows is is harder. Like the, the Portland couldn't pressure Compazzo to keep him from, you know, hitting Jokic kind of in stride, leading him into one of those jump hooks or something like that. Chris Paul and Mikhail Bridges can get into guys. And all of a sudden, if those passes are, are pulling Jokic off the block and, and making him start his move from, from kind of a standstill, that's a pretty big difference, I think. And, and that's, that's sort of a, another related advantage to all of those, the backcourt players being out for Denver. And even like, you know, just, it just requires so much discipline. Like whenever Jokic sets a back screen for Michael Porter Jr., they get something good out of it because they don't want to switch that. MPJ gets a dunk or Nicola gets the ball with those windows of space. It's just really hard to stay that disciplined and run that stuff possession after possession after possession when it's not really how you've played to that degree the whole time. Bobby, correct me if I'm wrong. Ryan McDonough made the Bridges pick, right? He did. Yeah. And that's when um, Brett Brown was in charge of the Sixers. During that, oh God, that's that right. was during that uh, post interregnum. I call those inter interregnums. Yeah, the and the and Zaire Smith isn't even in the league. You know, I mean, that's who they, that's who uh, Philadelphia picked. I don't know how many corner threes Mikael Bridges made last night, but it felt like forty. I'm gonna have and- to rewrite. I'm gonna have to rewrite. I, I mean, I wrote Phoenix up just because to have in case they lost to the Lakers, and I have a Bridges section. In oh, Bridges you're a hater. Hating. That means you're that means you're a hater. No, oh, no, you, oh, no, I had the Suns to win the series. I have to be prepared. I'm just, I, I'm just kidding. Um, and I mean, I have like Bridges at like four for 95. It's probably going to be higher than that. I mean, like he's basically, you know, I, I mean, between that and, you know, parts of, you know, that Lakers series, um, I think from we it, it, watching last night is that if you're Denver, like, this is not the Portland de- this is not Portland's defense right like this is Phoenix's who's had a top five or six defense in the league all year and I think the one thing for me going forward to watch is where Michael Porter jr is he had a great flow um, in that first half I think he was five for eight and then one for five doesn't play much in the fourth quarter and Mike Malone came out after in the in the press conference said like he wasn't moving well like he, there was something off with him where he wasn't moving well. I where I needed to take him out of the game. 
So where is he from a from a health standpoint? Because they are going to need him. Like yeah, I I was watching that fourth quarter and be like, Jamichael Green's still in the game. Yeah, like, where like how are they think they're going to come back without? I mean, I love J Mike, but you if at that point you need a some hot streak of three point shooting to come back. Yeah, I mean, who's your you know I mean who's your number you know number two number three guy? And um you know you you know you get one for ten from Monty Morris um last night um your margin for error is not um is not very high. I mean, just based on what we, we've talked about the guards, what, what's not there. Um, and, you know, against a really good Phoenix team. I brought up the Bridges trade only because I feel like, you know, all the focus is on Aiton and Trey Young and Luka Doncic because people are going to endlessly compare all those picks and apologies to Marvin Bagley for not being in the conversation. Um, but the Bridges deal, like when that happened, that was a big swing for Phoenix. Like they traded, to, they traded the Heat's top whatever pick, right? Top whatever protected pick, and their yeah. own pick in that draft. It was draft. the Dragic, the, the original Dragic pick, I think, right? And, yeah. And, and that and that was like when that happened, that was like, oh wow, that's a that's a big swing. And like in terms of just cold, like how much is pick X worth in average wins over a placement player? Phoenix did not win that trade just by sheer value. That was a we're betting on this guy pick. Yeah. That was a we are so confident in our scouting and our background that we think this guy is worth all that. It's about this specific player, and it was 100% correct. And if Philly, I'm sorry to the Sixers fans, you're down 1-0 as we record this. Mikhail Bridges is killing it. Like, Philly, quote unquote, won that trade, but they did not win that trade because Phoenix bet on the right person, and they deserve a ton of credit for that. Well, and, um, and, and as Seth knows, two way guys, you know, I mean, those guys, you, you always sit around when you're having your meetings, like, how do you get six, seven, six, eight wings that can play both ends of the court? <laughs> I mean, like, and credit Phoenix for identifying it the right guy in the draft. I mean, they could have gone in a different direction, and we would be saying, well, geez, they gave up the Miami pick for this guy. And now they look good for what they did. Uh, did you guys have uh, either of you have awards votes or no? No, thank God. No. It's bad no, enough, so Zach, that we picked series and then you get called out by like team social media. You know, like I, I, I was, you know, when who I picked, called you out, who called you out? Well, I, I you know, I we it was who was it? Was it Memphis in the? I think because I, I took Golden State in the playing game. I wanted to, I wanted to stand on the mountain after I was the only one to pick Phoenix over the Lakers, but I said to myself. I will not do that to my ESPN colleagues. I will not. I will not. You know, do that. I'll let the Phoenix fans. Now you, you're out. doing it. Now, now <laughs> you're doing it. He will not do it in print. <laughs> so, so I, I, the thing, the thing with those that I've learned is no one is ever going to remember when you're right, right? So they're only going to make fun of you when you're wrong. And spoiler, you're going to be wrong all the time, just like everyone is. And so you shouldn't brag so much when you're right because the next wrong thing is coming around the corner. But people won't remember that you're the only one that picked the – you picked the Suns? Go the on, congratulations. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, I, I was you know one that of, gets me? Nothing. <laughs> yeah. I was one of only – I think only three of us out of 18 picked the Hawks over the Knicks. And, like, you know what? I'm going to be wrong about – I'm probably going to be wrong about Nuggets Suns the way game one looked. So I asked because Coach of the Year came in yesterday, yeah. and it was obviously a, a, a razor-thin margin in favor of Tibbs. And look, you could vote – either of those guys, it doesn't it doesn't really matter. But I will say – I mean, it matters like to the, to the people involved, but it's, it's, a, it's a – you could make an argument for six other coaches. I mean, there's a lot of great coaches in the league. 
I, I do think, though, there was this perception of Tibbs, the Knicks are a Tibbs team. The Suns are a Chris Paul team. And I, I thought all along that that was a disservice to the Knicks players and the Suns coaches. And in particular, I, I, I have so much admiration, and this is what stood out to me, and it's the biggest question of the series going forward, for how the Suns started the season with Chris Paul and Devin Booker kind of feeling it out. The offense had like a your turn, my turn. How are we going to make some flow out of this? These guys both like to do the same things. Flash forward X months, they have the most sophisticated spread pick and roll game in the league, and it just killed the Nuggets last night. Because spread pick and roll, people think Devin Devin Booker dribbles, eight and rolls, three shooters around them, blah, blah, blah. The best defense, even mediocre defenses can deal with that. If you're just standing, if those three guys are standing still over and over again, Denver can deal with that. You watched that game last night. Denver has a scheme. I'm not going to bore people with what it is. They know what they want to do. They know how they want to help. Phoenix knows what Denver wants to do and crafted all of these trickster things to to screw with them. And so um, when there's one guy zoning up, one nugget zoning up between a corner shooter and a wing shooter, Phoenix will have that wing shooter lift all the way up to the top of the arc instead of being on the wing. And that one guy suddenly has like 50 feet of space and is like, oh, I can't do that. Somebody's open. They'll have... uh, when there are two shooters on on the help side, they'll have one guy instead of standing still set a flare screen for the other guy, and all of a sudden that guy pops open. It just they vary it up time and time again, and that require. I mean, that sounds easy. You guys work for teams. I haven't like to get the player buy-in, synchronicity, organization. Hell, just to get Aiton to be like, I'm the number one pick in the draft. So I'm going to roll over and over again. That is such a masterful coaching job. It's such a masterful job by the players to execute it over and over again in all of these varying alignments that Denver has no idea what's coming. So, Seth, I'm wondering, what of that did you notice? And, like, what is Denver's response to that? Because we knew going in, and now we know more than ever, Phoenix's game plan is going to be, we're going to drag Jokic out, we're going to force you to help behind the play, and we're going to keep passing until we get an open three. I mean, I think the first thing is probably need a little more, even if he's not shooting as well, probably need a little more Monty Morris because I don't think Compazzo has a whole lot for Chris Paul. And that's that's just that that's where it starts right there. They get that first crack, and then all of a sudden you're you're bringing the third guy into the in the pick and roll, and and either they're swing swing to an open corner three, or Paul is just like zipping a pass over the top that that you know hits you know Bridges or Cam Johnson or or Jay Crowder in the shooting pocket, and then you're giving up open corner threes to pretty good shooters, and and you're not going to win a lot of games that way. So I think that's that's the start of it. Um. I did like what Denver did in terms of putting Aaron Gordon on on Devin Booker. Um, I think that was a that was a, a, a nice thing, and they got some good stuff on the other end out of that as well. When when uh, Booker was forced to guard, you know, uh, uh, um, Aaron Gordon in in it's the in only transition. circumstance where I want Aaron Gordon posting up is when he gets that cross match. I call in my notes. I write cross match hell. Like Devin Booker is trapped in cross match hell, and Aaron Gordon can. Can can Williams? Okay, so you like that? I want to talk more about that, but keep going. No, I think the, the the biggest thing is they they just have to to keep that first breakdown from from happening a little bit more, and it's it's much easier said than done, but it just is too easy for a team with good shooters and good passers to get those open looks once you get into rotations. Um, the Gordon on Booker thing is interesting because it is a move I think that was pretty obvious they would make. The one thing it does do is 
it takes size off the back line where they're rotating around and puts it on the front line. And all of a sudden you're asking Campazzo or, or Monte Morris to stop Ayton's role and then fly back out to a shooter. And they're so small compared to Gordon. But I do like the idea of kind of trying to smother Booker with a little bit of size. The other thing I wonder is like, if if we don't think Chris Paul wants to shoot threes, can Jokic just hang back? I, mean, I know you want to don't you don't want to give him long twos because he's with the one of the best long two shooters ever. Can he hang back just a little bit more than he is? Does he have to come up to the level of the screen every time and trigger those rotations? But maybe you're shaking your head, Seth. You don't think that's no. A good idea. I, I just I, if 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 Chris Paul's going to score forty five points on nineteen footers, isn't that better than? Than Mikhail Bridges and Jay Crowder and Cam Johnson shooting corner threes, just from it's a interesting, from though, standpoint, it, it is. It probably is. I guess it probably is. I just don't. I do think they need to. They need to leverage Chris's. Did he shoot a three last night? He hit one step back three. I think at the end of the game, didn't he? Yeah. Um, he clearly doesn't want to shoot threes. Like he had that corner three where he was wide open and he just touch pass right out of it. I do think when he's off the ball. Maybe they need to leverage that reluctance a little bit more by helping off him a little bit, but you can't help. I mean, helping off Chris Paul, that seems insane. It's Chris Paul. I just don't know as long as you have Jokic and you defend this way, what's your – he took two – he took three threes last night and made two, so what the hell do I know? Um, you know, I, I just don't know. You can't put – you can't do the Brook Lopez thing where they're like, why don't we try to hide Jokic on Jay Crowder? You could do that, but they're just going to put Crowder in the pick and roll. You know what? I mean, going real back to – I know we're talking about Denver right there, but when you were talking about – with Monty, because I was I was thinking of that. Like there was a point like in the season when like Aiton's shot attempts were like what was like hovering around like eight or nine, and like and you're thinking like this is number one pick in the draft, and he kind of just bit his tongue during the whole time. Didn't you didn't hear basically boo from him, and now you've kind of figured out how to maybe use him a little bit differently. You know when we get when we come into the playoffs, certainly in the Lakers series, certainly now. Um, but like, I always say like half the battle on Seth knows is like half the battle is just managing guys, like just managing their expectations. So when you do need them down the road, um, they're going to be there. They haven't, you know, they haven't jumped ship on you. It's a, it's a great point. And those guys have all bought in and they all play super hard. And I do, I do think Michael Porter had a bad defensive game. I think Denver has some stuff to clean up, but Phoenix is just really, really good. They're rock solid. They know what they want to do. Um, they execute it well, and uh, part of the reason I thought this was going to be a coin flip series was the rumblings that Barton might come back and Dozier might come back and fill out the Denver rotation a little bit, and Denver de- desperately needs... You know, Barton's an interesting player. I was talking to someone in L.A. Um, after the Clippers Mavs game the other night about Barton and about how, you know, they're a little lukewarm on Barton. This guy works for another team because he doesn't really fit how the Nuggets play. He's sort of a, an ad-lib guy. He doesn't always cut to the right places and do all this, and I'm like... I can't think that's why they need him. They need that injection of just like north-south unpredictability, someone who can just kind of get stuff done. And, you know, we'll see if he comes back. I'm glad you brought that up because that's actually, a, you know, to get back to the previous series, just a touch. Like, yeah, he doesn't play the way we want to play, but sometimes in the playoffs we have to play another way. So having that is – and just having that sort of that 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 chaos – that that someone who does who's unpredictable is 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 can be pretty useful. And Denver, like you said, Denver needs that. Uh, Milwaukee needs that. Utah will probably need that against the Clippers, just to to name another you know another spot. That's a good transition. Before we do that, 
I did a, a minor thing I liked. I was happy to see Dario Saric is alive. And and the Suns won the bench minutes last night. And that's actually, that's, that was a big deal for Denver against Portland. They won the minutes when Jokic sat. And it was a big struggle for Phoenix against the Lakers before the injuries mounted up. The Lakers would win the minutes when Booker was out because LeBron was playing. If those bench minutes tilt in favor of Phoenix, that's the, kind of another wild card. Let's talk about Utah Clippers. I think I just read our ESPN picks, Bobby. I can't remember who you picked, uh, but I think nine people picked Utah and seven people picked Clippers. Um, and so this is, this is you know, a, one of the contested series. A lot of these series end up being like you're, you're the lone guy picking the Suns over the Lakers. Like everybody picks one thing. This is a, this is a contested one. Um, I will leave it open-ended for you guys to start. Bobby, who did you pick and what strike what what strikes you as a key battleground in this series? I mean, I, I picked the I picked the Jazz in I believe six. I want to say Ooh, they're um, closing it out at Staples. Okay, but I'm I'm concerned. I'm certainly concerned with Conley, right? I mean, where he is health wise. I mean, he he was their he was probably their best player in the Memphis series. I would say, um, so that's a concern for me. I like. But I could, I mean, I could certainly see Clippers coming in and Paul and Kawhi being the two best players on the floor. Like, I could see that coming in and then putting them, putting it, you know, their defensive performance in game four on the road in Dallas was as good as I've seen the team, you know, from a, you know, from a defensive standpoint there. Um, the, um, I guess it's going to be the all French battle at center between, Batum and Gobert is going to be interesting. I mean, if, if Ty's going to stick with that and go with a, you know, a six that's eight, a, that that's a big question. Though. Like, what lineup is he going to start? That's yeah. question number one. And then, how is now? You saw the Clippers rely more on Luke Kennard in games. I mean, he was in the witness protection program, as I say, for games one to five and a half. Do they go back to that? Coming off your bench, I think you know you're, we're going to see a healthy dose of, of um, you know, of Terrence Mann. Um, but there's still a part of me that just doesn't trust them. I don't, you know, there's a part of me that doesn't trust the Clippers. I like the Jazz. I like having two shooters come off the bench with Ingles and um, and Clarkson. I think you kind of know what you're going to get with Donovan. Um, Bogdanovic, you know, Bo, you know, we forget Boyan did not play last year, uh, right? I, I always forget that we got to work on your itches. I know. It's okay. We'll, we'll, we'll get it. We'll get it. We'll, we'll get it one day. <laughs> so I, I like. I am going to. I pick the Jazz. I'm going to stick with them. Um, I think the Gobert matchup is going to be probably the most intriguing out of you know what we're going to see in this series. Well, look, never trust the Clippers is like a pretty healthy life motto to live to live by in general. I mean, I don't know what other I'm trying to think of other funny life mottos and coming up with a blank. But don't you know, don't play leapfrog with a unicorn kind of motto. Just, you know, just, just don't never trust the Clippers. Uh, but uh, Seth, what about you? Where do you stand? Uh, I, I think I go just the opposite. I think it's it's Clippers Ooh. and six. Um, who the hell guards Kawhi? Like that, it, like, like, uh, I don't we can make things complicated or, you know, we just waxed a, a poetic about how good KD was in the first two games of, of that series for having the best player on the planet comparison. Like it's a two man race right now between those two, isn't it? We were kind of there entering the second round of the playoffs last year. And then 
whatever happened to Kawhi in the kind of the back half of, of the Denver series happened. And we sort of, I don't want to say we forgot about him, but he was just an absolute killer against Dallas was, in the first round. Uh, that the game, game six, I mean, game seven, he was also spectacular game six. I don't know if there have been 10 better two way games in the playoffs in NBA history than that. I mean, that's how good that game was. Uh, I, I, in fact, I doubt frankly that there have been, um, uh, but Royce O'Neal, yeah, send Royce O'Neal a fruit basket or something because it's going to be it's he's going to have to be working really hard. Send him some extra Pedialyte or something because the next couple of weeks of Royce O'Neal's life are not going to be fun. Even if Utah wins, it's not going to be fun for him. And you know, that's it. It you you want to talk about bad memories for me? Just the the kind of the expressionless. I'm just going to get to where I want to get to, and I'm going to hit a shot, and then I'm going to do it again, and I'm going to do it again, and then you're going to double, and I'm going to kick it to a great shooter, and he's going to hit a three. Like that all seems very familiar to me for a Kawhi Leonard like deconstruction of another team, and I just I don't see how Utah has has anything to deal with that. And then if they find something to deal with that, then they have a, a further like horrible matchup on Paul George, who you know maybe hasn't hit that level, but it's still like I don't want to be guarding Paul George with Joe Ingles or Boyan Bogdanovich. Do you? Well, there is no love lost. There is no love lost between Paul George and Joe Ingles. That is like a quiet NBA feud. Not even quiet because Joe Ingles is not quiet about anything. That is like a nice NBA feud. Donovan Mitchell has typically guarded Paul George when the starters are out there. I don't love that matchup for a number of reasons, including Donovan Mitchell is also coming off an injury. Um, I am with you, Seth. I picked Clippers in six. Uh, Many of the reasons you just outlined. And look, I want to... Start by saying, I'm going to get into the advantages Utah has in this series. So Jazz fans, don't do your Jazz fan thing where you stop listening now and go apoplectic about how everyone hates the Jazz and the national media is cheering against the Jazz and it's a big conspiracy against the Jazz, okay? Um, I think the small ball lineup against Gobert is really interesting. And I, I can tell you for sure there's a contingent within the Clippers who wants Ty Lue to start that lineup right off the bat. Don't don't start Zubats. Bring Zubats in when Favors is in the game. It's just start... Start small just to test Gobert. Not only that, you could you could do things like put Gobert's man in the strong side corner and play with Gobert's tendency to help even when he shouldn't be helping. Uh, you can be you can be aggressive like that. I think guys who could not play against Luca are going to be able to play in this series. Like I think Zubats can play in this series. I think Beverly will get back in the rotation in this series because Donovan Mitchell's awesome. And Mike Conley's awesome. Those guys are not trucking Patrick Beverly in the post the way the way Luca did. And so I think the Clippers get deeper. Uh, man has earned minutes. And I think we will see that all-wing lineup that helped close out the Mavericks where they play five smalls, but none of them are Reggie Jackson, Rajon Rondo, or Patrick Beverly. I think Kennard has earned playing time. So I just think the Clippers get deeper and more settled with Luca gone. And I agree with you. The Kawhi matchup is a problem, and and it is an interesting clash between Conley and Mitchell, who are the trump cards when the Clippers switch everything in that small ball lineup. Those guys are going to have to create something from nothing, and they're both excellent at it. Conley has gotten really good at it late in his career with step back threes and stuff. Those guys are coming off injuries. Versus how much did that comeback against Dallas take out? Of the Clippers stars, yeah, Paul George played the whole second half of Game Six. You know they're playing giant minutes totals. The burden on them is huge. So I think I think that's an interesting battle. And look, going those are the those are the things that the Clippers bring to the table. 
uh, Bobby, you're picking the Jazz. What what does Utah bring to the table here that scare that should scare me as someone who picked the Clippers? And I have my answers, but you are the Jazz guy, so you you speak on behalf of Jazz Nation. Hashtag Jazz Nation. How how about home court versus cardboard fans? How's that sound? <laughs> yeah, Utah's, you, Utah has uh, been aggressive welcoming fans back into the the Vivint, the Viv, the Viv, Aunt Viv. What do we call that stadium? The Viv, Aunt Viv. I'm calling it Aunt Viv. Game one is it? Games one and two are at Aunt Viv. It, but you know, as I said, like my Jazz pick is lukewarm, though. Like I am, out of all the picks I've made, I'm probably that's the most most concerned. But as I said, it's if if Conley can't go, like at full tilt here. I think the Clippers will win the series. I do. I think. I think when you said um, what if the Clippers will have anything left in the tank from the da- Dallas series, I think they basically are like there's a self, uh, sense of relief. Like that is you know my my takeaway there where um, like like the bur the that burden of being down three two or being down two zero, there's a sense of um, relief here. But if if they are not going to shoot the ball, and that is kind of their bread and butter, Utah that is, and we saw that in the game one loss to Memphis, I think they are going to they are going to struggle. You know? You're supposed to be making the Jazz argument, Bobby. I know, I know, but I am I am lukewarm on this pick. I really am, and I know. And as I said, it all comes down to Conley. I, if Mike Conley cannot is going to miss time, they are not going to win this series. To your point about the sigh of relief. Look, I'm not going to – who knows what they actually feel, but I, I I, bet they do, if only because Luka is just a different beast than Mitchell and Conley. Like, those guys can take step-back threes now and then. It's not a weapon like it is for Luka. So they're not going to destroy you with that shot like Luka is, and they're not going to destroy you in the post. And so I just think it unlocks a lot of possibilities. So I'll make the argument for the Jazz then, okay, other than the Viv against – the Staples silence. Um, the Jazz have often been compared to the Hawks of 2015 that won 60 games with this sort of egalitarian style and blah, blah. I have never bought that, and I've said many times I think that's unfair to the Jazz because those Hawks did not have perimeter just-go-get-me-a-bucket guys on the level of Mitchell and Conley, and they did not have a defender on the level of Rudy Gobert at the rim. And you can talk about how Rudy Gobert is going to be stretched beyond his usual limits, whatever. He's still Rudy Gobert. He's still really good. And the collective mastery of the style that they play outside of the go-get-me-a-bucket stuff has reached a new level this year because of chemistry and cohesion and experience. I think whatever kind of team you think Utah is, if you think they're Hawks-ish or whatever, they're the apex of that kind of team for all of those reasons. And so I absolutely think with home court, they're going to have a game where they get rolling and they get the Clippers in rotation. They're going to have games where they get rolling and they get the Clippers in rotation, even if the Clippers want to switch everything because they're just that good. And I, I so I think Utah, like I, I sweated, sweat, I sweated, whatever the past tense of sweat is. I did that picking the Clippers in six, A, because I still have Clippers PTSD from the bubble, and B, I just think Utah is really good. But in the end, I think... I just see things in this series that if I'm the Clippers, I, f- I feel pretty good about it. And that starts with Kawhi and Royce O'Neal. And I just like that matchup and everything flows from there. Can I make a couple other you know points in favor of, of Utah, even though I picked the Clippers, kind of go go with lawyer brain here and, and, and kind of make, take the opposite argument? I mean, 
it's it's funny we we are talking about all the liabilities that Rudy Gobert brings to the series, and you you mentioned like obviously he's still going to be very impactful defensively. I think he I'm, he. I'm glad you mentioned that. I mentioned that because I did mention it. Yes, he did. hashtag hashtag Take note. Um, I, I don't think there's there's been a bigger Rudy Gobert is a great player backer than me. Um, in kind of N- NBA media, and this is a series where he can prove it, not just on the defensive end, but the offensive end, because all that stuff inside that Dallas couldn't get against the Clippers. This is a different. This is a different caliber of of offensive rebounder of roller of uh, you know a guy who can who can if he's got Marcus Morris on him can duck into the post and 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 you know do a little something every now and again so that that's step one and then step two is is the defensive problems that the that the the Jazz had at times against Memphis the Clippers don't have anybody like John Morant they don't have that kind of dynamic penetrator and so if the Jazz wing defenders, jazz perimeter defenders can keep their man in front a little bit better, then that keeps Rudy, let, lets him stay home and wall off the paint. And, you know, yes, Kawhi doesn't necessarily need to get all the way to the basket, but that does take away a lot of those open threes for the other players. So I could see a series where Utah's style prevails and they hit their threes and f- turn the Clippers into a pull up jump shooting team. And that's advantage Utah. Yeah. I, I, I could I, Rudy Gobert's offensive rebounding rate is going to have to be huge in this series, assuming the Clippers play a lot of it small, and he's a fantastic offensive rebounder and one of the best rollers in the league. And I also think it'll be interesting to see how who does Kawhi guard at the start of the series. I think Paul George will guard Mitchell. Do they try to buy Kawhi some time just guarding Royce O'Neal, just chill? We can put Batum on Bogdanovich, Morris on Gobert. You chill and help, and we'll rest you on defense the way we did. Like, are they willing to to risk sacrificing an early game again if that goes badly before they put Kawhi at full throttle? I think it's going to be – I'm really looking forward to this series. I think it has a chance to be a really, really fun series. And I just I just think the Clippers' top-end talent is a little better but um, and well-suited to this series, but I could absolutely see Utah winning it. But I did – I picked the Clippers. I can't, I can't lie. Uh, Bobby, before we let you go – um, Dallas is out. Uh, their post out press conferences were interesting to say the least, mostly focusing on Kristaps Porzingis and his role and what Luca uh, considers to be his role and what Donnie Nelson considers to be Luca's role and giving Porzingis the role, blah, blah, blah. What in the hell is going on there? And can they trade Porzingis anywhere with, I believe, three years and 101 fat dollars left on his contract? Yeah, I mean, there's a buyer beware, right? On Porzingis right now, and I don't, I don't think really just, you know, certainly w- what he's done on the court. I mean, I think if you're a team, he's played 100 games in the last two years, right? I mean, he's missed a lot of games, and to take, invest in 100 million dollars for the next three years is a big caution for me, unless you don't have to give up anything, right? Like if you're like San Antonio, for example, and you think, you know what? We want to use maybe cap space on Kristaps Porzingis. But what does that do for Dallas on the other end? Like unless you're just looking to get rid of um, his salary or if you're Oklahoma City and you're basically just building your roster through the draft and Shea Gilgis Alexander does taking a swing on Kristaps Porzingis, you know, mean anything here? And 
I, and I wrote in their article, like they're at a crossroads with, with their roster because when you go out and spend max type money on a number two guy, you are expected to get max type production. And it, then you, if you don't, then you are relying on the Dorian Finney-Smiths of the world, the Tim Hardaway Juniors of the world, the Jalen Brunson, guys like All that. All of whom other than Brunson. Brunson had a down series. Yeah. Finney-Smith and Tim Hardaway Jr., people are like, this Mavericks roster, I see Mavs fans, this Mavericks roster stinks. It stinks around no. Luka, blah, blah. Those guys showed up. Yeah. The problem is the number two guy <laughs> is giving you number five level production. Yeah. That's the problem. The rest of the roster – yeah, Jalen underperformed, and you know Kleba was 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 hurt, and that's one of the reasons I picked the Clippers at the beginning of the series was Kleba wasn't himself. Like I, for the most part, like what more do you expect out of those guys? Even Boban, like the fact that you had to bring in Boban for rim protection and size is an indictment on Porzingis. But Boban did, but uh, we can't expect much more from Boban. Yeah, I mean, and, and the guy you went out and got the trade that you thought was kind of going to give you the the defensive presence in, in Josh Richardson. You know, hey, the guy battled COVID the whole year. You know, like, like, you didn't get much from him. Like, I'm glad you. Br- I'm glad you brought that up because he wasn't good, and they ended up going with Trey Burke, and that's not the answer. But I do think we we just have such short term memories about this stuff. Like, it it derailed his season completely. I'm glad you brought because I, I frankly had forgotten it wasn't going to bring it up. I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah. So like you know like. You know, hey, Luke is going to sign his big contract, two hundred million dollars, and now it's just a matter of like, is the roster bringing back the same crew good enough, or do you have faith that you can turn Porzingis into something more than basically just a starter, right? Like you need him to be like a top starter slash All NBA player, and if he's not, then you're probably looking at first round exits for the you know for the foreseeable future here. More than that, to me, the vision was he's our center. And that's the way I'm going to get him pick and pop threes, where all of a sudden he's getting a ton of those every game. If he's at the four because I can't trust him to defend the rim, then people are going to put wings on him and switch, and they're going to vaporize all those things. And all you're going to be left to do is dump him the ball at the nail with a wing on him and ask him to make enough turnaround jumpers, which, spoiler alert, he's not going to do. And to me, like in the bubble last year when he was quite good, he basically either played center or played with Kleba, who is a four. I mean, like you can do, like Kleba can rim run and all that, but size-wise and spacing-wise, he's a four. This year, they just completely lost trust in Porzingis to play center. And that was always, to me, if this trade is going to work out and Luka and KP are going to be the dynamic one-two that lifts you, Porzingis has to play center. And maybe I'm just wrong about that. Maybe I'm misunderstanding his skill set. But that was the, that, and, and his inability to do that because of whatever decline has happened to him athletically has impacted his defense. That, to me, is the big story. Seth, does any of that make sense? Like, KP is a center or am I just – am I – Am I too stuck in the mud on that? No, that, that's that's absolutely right. I mean, for for all the reasons you you kind of offensively as much as as anything, like if he's if he you can stick a small forward on him and he can't do anything about it, then you just have a a, a slow tall wing. But it, I think if you're Dallas, you're you're kind of hoping, maybe not expecting that you know a full year out from his latest knee surgery that some of the mobility and rim protection comes back because last year. When he played, he was a good rim protector for him, and he was not. He was. He was very good. Yeah. He was like really. He and Kleba together were legitimately menacing at the rim. 
yeah and I, so i think that's like you you I mean again that's more of a hope and an expectation but then you look at his career and it's just like okay he's healthy until he gets hurt the next time and so that's 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 almost to me the the bigger worry than than even where he is right now is even if he gets back how much can you count on him bobby give me a couple good fake kp trades there aren't many. There are, no, there's not. I mean, I think if you're like if your teams out there that can't get guys in free agents, uh, free agency, and if you're, um, you know, guys on an expiring contract. But on the other end, like, what does it do for Dallas? Like, what does expiring contracts do for them? But like, like Orlando, like Gary Harris, Terrence Ross, and like a few the Denver pick, right? Like, those are the type of deals that I'm, I'm, you know, thinking of. Yeah, I see your face there, Zach. It ain't pretty. It ain't pretty like, you know, um, you know, we talked before we got on like Boston, Kemba, right? Like Kemba Walker, the two years left of Kemba Walker versus the three years left of Kristaps Porzingis. That one makes some sense to me for both teams, even though it's depressing on almost every possible level. It makes a little sense to me. I, I mean... One thing you need to get if you're Dallas is cap flexibility sooner, right? Like that. If that's all you get, you know, Richard Jefferson and I were debating this on TV yesterday. He said, you know, someone is going to go sign in Dallas, and I said, no one ever goes and signs in Dallas. They're always the team that has cap space, and nobody ever goes there. And he very correctly said, well, this is Luca, though. People are going to line up to play with Luca. Maybe that's the case. So I think just getting the ability through cap space to flip your team around is has value in and of itself. And the Kemba trade gets you there. A year, a year earlier, but you know they have Kemba. Yeah, you know Kemba's just going to be an off-ball guy with Luca, secondary ball handler, which is useful, but you know not what Kemba Walker is really. Yeah, I mean, in, in this summer is not the the summer when you want to just flip it for a thirty million dollars slot. I mean, like there's really not that. There was really not that unless it's Demar Derozan, right? I mean, there's like not that guy out there as far as um, you know to put him out. But that, yeah, I mean, those are like. Eric Gordon, DJ Augustin guy, like, you know, like just like guys who are, yeah, I know it's not, it's not pretty buddy heel, like Kevin Love. Do I even mention Kevin Love, right? Like if you're just looking to get rid of that extra year and to maybe see what you have in love, I mean, those are the type of, you know, those are the type of trades that you're, you're staring at. I can't believe we ended on Kevin Love's (laughs) name. That's really depressing. Um, (laughs) All right, well, uh, we got game one of Clippers-Jazz tonight. Um, It's the late game. We got playoff series rolling. Uh, Hopefully, we can all reconvene at a later date and talk about some other good series. Bobby Marks, you know where to read his stuff at ESPN. He's already prepping the obituary of your favorite team, so just know that. (laughs) And Seth Partnow of The Athletic is writing a a playoff diary. He's writing weekly analytics look-arounds. He's been a great writer ever since. Uh, I found him on Nylon Calculus. It's it's great to see you, and uh, congratulations on the beard. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys.